how do you balance speed and safety? Uh, and it's one of the reasons why at Aurora we're very intentional about the culture we've been building since day one. You know, our, and it's, it's embedded right in our mission. So our mission is deliver the benefits of self-driving technology safely, quickly, and broadly. Are we still workshopping the name Atonicast After Dark? After hours. After hours. I feel like that might be trademarked, but anyway, yeah, maybe. <laughs> it's happy hour. And and now and now we have uh, Chris Ermson with us, uh, along with quite a few other yeah. luminaries of the space yeah, yeah. Uh, gathered together here. So, so Chris, thanks Chris. so much for coming. Oh, thanks, thanks for, for coming me. on the show. No pressure. We have a lot, like a live audience, and here comes Alex barreling in. <laughs> Excellent. Does Alex? Oh. No, I don't think so. It's we, just a conflict. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, I think that we, what we should do is we should allow Chris first to ask any question he wants. Seems fair. Ooh. Yeah, it seems fair. Wow. But, so, but Alex probably won't answer anything oh, you no, ask. He, 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 this one, he'll, so what is your opinion of this recent Cannibal run? The, the new record setter, it's set it by what, like an hour? Do you mean to tell me that a man of your stature and gravitas has time in his busy schedule, speaking around the world, to read about the Cannibal run records? Yes. Thank you. So um, for those who are unaware... The new Cannonball record is 27 hours and 24 minutes across the country. Um, besting the prior record by an hour and over an hour, and which bested my record by over two and a half hours. Um, I think it's a great feat of human ingenuity, and I'm thrilled that, um, I'm thrilled that they did it safely. Um, I am surprised. When I ran the numbers in 2006, I thought 30 hours was about the floor. And I based that on my research of historical DOT records of traffic, uh, NOAA weather history, and what I believe to be the absolute limit of tire technology because if you, if you calculate that one storm is an hour of time lost and a traffic jam is an hour of time lost, and I had three of them, I could have done 29. But 27 is pretty severe. I'm hoping that you, Mr. Ermson, and my friend Brian and others develop AV technology as soon as possible um, because there are people out there who are really dangerous. <laughs> Yeah, I, I, yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I don't think our stuff will be breaking the 27-hour limit. But I guess, you know, the, the advantage that the AV will have is that, A, it's not going to get tired, so it'll be safe the whole time, and B, it doesn't have to sleep, and it doesn't have to stop for a bathroom break. So it'll be interesting. I'm curious. I, f I feel like someday there will be, like, the, uh, um, the Rush song, Red Barquetta. There will be an interstate autonomy law that interstates that... Like, urban cores will be geofence level four only. And once that happens, there'll be dual-mode subscription-based business models around privately-owned vehicles that switch to level four when you enter a fence. And outside those fences, they'll be human-controlled with superior ADAS. But someday, there'll be an interstate autonomy law. And on that day, maybe you or some Ethan, some of your best engineers will retire off the IPOs and they will go out and hack the autonomous vehicles and then have like a semi-autonomous cannonball. 
Because in, a, in, a, in an environment where you know the behavior of the other actors, to have one vehicle <laughs> that can predict with almost perfect information the behavior of the others, it would be much easier to go cross-country in, say, 24 hours. Do you think that would be possible? So, I guess I haven't thought about that enough to give an opinion, and I, I am... I am confident that our engineers are not going to be hacking safety features and turning them off. So, you know, so we won't, we won't go there. Um, but do I, like, one of the things I think is interesting and exciting for people who love driving is that as we get this technology to market, um, all of the other cars will become good drivers, right? And they will be less frustrating and they will be using the right lane. And so the people who, are more aggressive. Let's go with. Um, we'll have a you know a free lane to drive in effectively, and they'll be able to go and do their thing. And I think I think the other thing that'll happen is that these vehicles will be used more for fun. Like like you know human driven vehicles a hundred years from now, it'll be like a horse. You go take it to a track. You'll enjoy it. You'll be able to go and push it to its limits. Uh, but you'll do that in a safe setting, and you won't be putting the rest of the public at risk. That Alex was an has awesome a very- pivot. That was like. That was fantastic. Well, um, so I think that Alex has a little bit of wishful thinking. I think he's hoping, right? Or are you, the whole scenario that you just played out, is that what you want? Are, are you going to be part of that hacking team that's going to try to crack uh, he, as part of the Human Driving Association, not as part he, he of being affiliated? doesn't well, want to, to drive be, to anymore. Clear, he's ready to give it up. Almost everyone I've met who works at any AV company, almost everyone, really loves driving, which is the irony of it. Yeah. Um, and really, and they also really believe in safety. They're all convinced that everyone else is dangerous, but they're okay. Well, it's like like more than what eighty percent of Americans believe they're better than average drivers. Right. Yeah. So, so, but I also believe that the cathartic that there are people there there are human edge cases. There are people who will always. Uh, sadly, I'm one of these people who will always have to do things that oh. shouldn't be done. Just because, you know, like a mountain must be climbed. And again, I think, you know, today, if you buy a modern car, it is dramatically safer than buying a car built in the 50s or, you know, before that. And people still enjoy driving those cars and they're making a hopefully informed decision about the risks involved in driving that car relative to a modern vehicle. And they go do it because... It's it's joyful, and you know I, I think what we're doing. I you know I'm actually not a car guy. I know you're not, but I I, I think you've heard the story, right? I, I actually discovered the joy of driving a little while ago, a couple of years ago. So after I left Google, uh, I used to commute just on a bicycle, and when I was looking for a new job, my wife said, you know, if you're going to go have meetings with people, you can't show up on a bike. Uh, and so I bought a car and I bought a, a convertible. And an Audi, right? Uh, it is an Audi. It's Two liter. A, uh, A5 Cabriolet. Automatic. Uh, uh, it is automatic. I'm sorry to disappoint. Um, but I was, I don't know if you've, yeah, I'm sure you have been on the 280, which is this just beautiful bit of road um, down the peninsula or up the peninsula, depending which way you're going. And I was out there one night, uh, one evening, right? The sun was at like that magic lighting. The roof was down. I had my music playing. And, and I was like, this is it. <laughs> this is when people say they love driving. This is that moment. You know, and then I got to San Francisco uh-huh. and I was like, this is why we're doing this because, you know, it was dark and miserable and the traffic was all backed up. And I was just like, okay, like I can see both sides of this. So. I had uh, a similar experience in that road in one of George Hotz's cars. <laughs> and I had the same expression on my face that you just had on yours. Is, is this it? <laughs> I, uh, 
No, it was actually quite good. Like but, out of fear or out of... Uh... Well, that, I realized that uh, at the time that vehicles are often products of the cultures in which they are designed. And there's a reason Teslas are designed and built up there. Traffic sucks. I immediately went out and leased a Tesla. And now I, I don't understand how people sit in traffic without very good driver assistance. And so I pray... I mean, as a car guy, I pray for AVs to arrive as soon as possible so I don't have to worry about an involuntary disengagement. Yep. Anyway, I'm going to say something I never say. I'd like to do less talking and talk wow. about you. Holy uh, cow. Because is, in general, I have a lot to say, but we have limited swear. time with you, yeah. Mr. Ernestson. Okay. Um, Thank you. I actually do have a question, though, um, that kind of gets to what Alex was asking a little bit before in his storytelling mode um, about the the likelihood of hacking let's say and when I say hack that can mean a lot of different things right it can be like a highly uh, technical aggressive attack or it could be something as simple as and we see this with Tesla owners putting two water bottles on a steering wheel to uh, get the torque sensor going um, to, so, it, so autopilot stays engaged so when you're developing the Aurora driver how much are you thinking about that and how much I'm sure it's important but yeah. Describe what you're doing to prevent misuse of the systems. And is that a conversation that you're having with uh, like automaker partners? Or are you doing something at the full stack level that would... Because a lot of it is the interaction with the vehicle, which you might not have a lot of control over. Yeah. So I think I think it's really important. There's, there's two, two different topics there. One is kind of misuse or intentional misuse of the vehicle. And then the other is... Um, you know, bad people trying to cause something bad to happen. And I think one of the reasons why, for a long time, I've been an advocate for moving past some of the mid-levels of autonomy to uh, versions where it really is a driverless vehicle, where the, the car isn't responsible, is because in that world, um, you know, you, you don't actually have to trust the occupants as much. Right, and you don't have this concern about either intentional misuse or unintentional confusion about the state of the system and its intent. Right, you have one driver and one driver responsible for it, and that's the automated system. And so, I think that's one way to simplify a lot of these these types of problems. As we think about um, functional safety, so the way things can go wrong when someone's trying to use one of these vehicles, that's where we start to think about. The, the system includes the, the riders in the vehicle and the vehicle itself. And so we start to think about um, what happens uh, if they leave the door open. And, you know, because that would be bad, right? You're in, you're in the automated vehicle getting a ride somewhere and the door's open. Or you're in the midst of getting in and out and it decides to head off. And so those type of kind of confusions and, and you know, parts of misuse we, we think about a lot. Um, and then on the hacking side, this is an area where... Um, we've thought about a fair bit, but we've been early in the development uh, for the last couple of years, and so there hasn't been as much direct investment on that. But as we now, over this next coming couple of years, we're going to be investing pretty heavily there. And really, the concern in those situations is asymmetric attacks. So we're much less, like we worry about, but to a much lesser degree, somebody doing something bad to a single vehicle, because there's easier ways to do something bad to a, a person. But when you have the possibility of you know, a remote entity 
going after a fleet of vehicles, that's where we really do think you have to have to think hard. And and what's good, in a sense, is that. This is not a problem unique to automated vehicles, right? We, we have this with regular vehicles. Frankly, we have this with the PCs everybody have, has in their house, right? This is a, a distributed uh, set of vehicles or a dis- set of compute that people are trying to attack. And so we can look at best practices and bring that to bear in this space as well. So to kind of uh, take the, the cannonball run discussion earlier and bring it around to sort of where I love this idea where we want the, this conversation to go so there's this this interesting thing we were talking about a, a while ago in the, in the AV space where on the one hand it's this kind of long tail grind problem the development process right on the other hand you know there's this constant temptation at least or uh, impulse to you know, show signposts along the way. We achieved this. We hit this milepost. Yeah. We demonstrated this. Um, I'm, I'm kind of just in general curious about your thoughts about sort of the balance between those things. Like, yeah. are they both important? And then maybe um, to kind of get to where we are right now, specifically in the state of autonomy, like what would be something that you would expect to see or want to see or, or that would mean something to you in 2020? Yeah, so I, I think... I think the first question is really is really important, uh, and it's just how do you balance speed and safety? Uh, and it's one of the reasons why at Aurora we're very intentional about the culture we've been building since day one. You know, our, and it's it's embedded right in our mission. So our mission is deliver the benefits of self-driving technology safely, quickly, and broadly. And you know, for the first couple of times people said it, you know, we kind of oh well, maybe if we said broadly first, it would sound better. But we we really like no, it is safely, quickly, broadly because that is the order of importance. And so our, anyone who joins our company, they get that. Um, impressed upon them from day one that first we think about safety and the opportunities there. Given that, we move as quickly as we can to bring the technology to market because, frankly, the status quo on the public roads is unacceptable, right? The 40,000 Americans killed every year, 1.25 million people globally, right? If we can bring this technology to scale a year sooner, that will be a profound saving in life. Um, and then and then broadly is, like, for us, you know, if we built one of these things, who cares, uh, right? We need to actually both have... Uh, large scale, but we also want to be able to impact across socioeconomic boundaries, right? If we, you know, if we build a technology that, you know, fetches ice cream for kids in Los Altos Hills where we live, like I look at, we have completely failed, right? This is an opportunity to re-democratize transportation in a way that, you know, Henry Ford did a hundred years ago with, uh, you know, any person raise, uh, with a reasonable salary should be able to afford a car. You know, we, we should be able to do that for people today. Do you, do you need to um, set goals either to sort of manage public expectations or, or internally? Like, is it important to say, you know, we will and, and you know, maybe, I don't know, it's interesting you guys are actually talking now about, about reducing the number of public road miles, whereas others are like, we drove this many public road yeah. miles. Um, is it important for the, for the public to be able to understand, like, like, what matters and what doesn't? Or is it just so different from each com- company that, that we're never really going to be able to, to handicap so, the horse race, so to speak? So, so I think at the end of the day, 
uh, when we're ready to deliver the product to market and have people use it, we need to be able to explain to the regulators, we need to be able to explain to policymakers, and we need to be able to explain to the public why they should be able to trust us and why the technology we're putting out there is not creating unreasonable risk on the road. Uh, between now and then, um, it's, you know, the... Does the public need to know about the horse race and, and the current standings? Like, it's kind of fun, but but no. Um, and I think it's it's really tricky because you know I've been working at this for a very long time, uh, and I look at what different companies put out in their press and their media, and it's really hard to tell, right? Like I you know I can I can look at a video from a certain company and I can say, well I could see how you could game this. Um, but I don't know if they're gaming it or not, right? So yeah, I think which for, company are we talking about? I, I think I think all of us are doing our best to put forward a, a positive story and showcase the technology we're building, right? I so, like how he had just ignored Alex's question. Um, it's a necessary skill it around is here. A, it is. <laughs> um, I, I figured it might be. Greetings, Atonicat Nation. Pardon the interruption. We know you're all anxious to hear the rest of the show, but we need a minute of your time. Actually, Kirsten, we need a few minutes. Okay, fine. Well, let's be clear. We don't need your time as much as your information. You might have heard that we have created a survey. Hold up. Let's provide some context here. What started as a fun side project has turned into something much bigger than we ever expected. And so it's time for us to grow up just a little. And to do that, we need to better understand our audience. We created a survey to do just that. The data fields are mostly optional, but the more you provide, the more you help. Importantly, we will never share your personal information with anyone. Filling out this survey is the most effective way to help us make this podcast everything it can be. So please take a few minutes to visit atonicast.com slash survey and help us understand who you are and how we can improve. Thanks. I think it might be time to open it up, but the um, the rules are that uh, just you have to say who you are and what company you're with. Yep. Um, and if Chris doesn't want to answer your question, he doesn't have to. But Chris doesn't. I will. Yeah. Well, we can. Yeah. Well, you, and you will answer it in my voice. Yeah. 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 And and we're looking, by the way, for maybe questions about sort of where we are right now in the autonomous drive development space, um, or maybe even thoughts. You don't have to ask a question. You can just sort of put something out there, and, and we can respond. Or, yeah. And also or no slides. No, no pitch decks or yeah. uh, please. And, so. and if you would like to say something, just put a hand up and we'll get to you. Yeah. We saw Kelly first, so this is Kelly Funkhauser, who's a very knowledgeable person from Consumer Reports uh, in the ADAS space and maybe more. I like to think more. Go ahead, Kelly. Uh, hi, Chris. Um, nice to finally meet you tonight. Um, my question is, when you are ready to deploy, are you looking to make the in-vehicle experience more of an entertainment zone for those that travel in these vehicles? Or have you considered designing the in-cockpit experience to foster trust in the technology by having an HMI or some sort of display of feedback interaction to build that trust and confidence by knowing what the system is seeing and have that double check? So. So I think it's I think it's not an or I think it's an and right I think that um, certainly while the early years of adoption we need to be putting the effort in to help people understand what's going on so they can grow uh, more comfortable with it. Now my experience is then that very quickly people 
acclimatized to this. And it's one of these things where I think for the first 15 mi- minutes, people will watch it like a hawk. Uh, and then after that, they'll, they'll you know, oh, it's, it's driving and it works. And then they'll, you know, go back to their phone and check their email. And so I think that um, if we do our job well, uh, ultimately, the self-driving capability will fade into the background, and uh, and the the opportunity in the vehicle will be around what experiences can you create? Can you create a, a place where you get the best best audio you've ever had, so you can watch a movie and enjoy it, or or, or really, you know, I- I enjoy your music, or is it the most comfortable ride, or is it the ride where? You know, it's smooth enough that you can do work on your laptop and, and get an extra half hour in on your way home. And I think that'll be, I think, I, you know, first, I'm, I, I, I'm excited about the technology and I'm thrilled about the positive impact we can have in the world. But I look forward to the day where we have this next generation of design and creativity going into what it means to be in a vehicle. So I think that'll be fun. So kind of a broader version of that, and then we'll get you, Courtney, um, is just sort of, are we really, have we made a transition in the space, and by we, I guess you, uh, from sort of uh, developing core technology uh, to developing an actual product? Are we have we made that transition? Are we in the middle of that transition? Where I, are we in that that balance? I think we're still in the middle of it, right? I, I think that um, you cannot get in a general purpose automated driver or automatedly driven vehicle today, uh, and so there's still work to be done. There's still problems to be solved, engineering to do. I think we are several of us are on the trajectory towards product, but you know, I, I guess I would ask. You know, in, in what, 1914, when the Model T rolled off the assembly line, I think it was 14, um, like, that was not the end of automobile development, right? There's been hundreds, trillions of, billion, uh, trillions of dollars invested in automated, uh, automobile technology over the last hundred and some years. And, and so I expect that we will continue to be developing this technology for the foreseeable future. Uh, and... So that core development will happen, and then it will be about the product on top of that as well. So we have Ro Gupta, who, by the way, we have to take a moment to thank for uh, for helping uh, no, make this party possible. Uh, we really I don't, appreciate I, it. I don't want to hog the mic on you know Baywatch nights, whatever you guys are calling <laughs> this thing. But um, it, I have a similar question that we asked Carl from uh, Aptive uh, related to safety, and, and I missed what he said. So we'll see what yeah, we get. Yeah, well, I, uh, it's it's a little different though because it's actually specific to something that um, a, a keynote you did at the AVS Symposium um, last year, which I you know I saw. Uh, what we were saying with Carl was you know it felt like 2019 was sort of like the year of safety, you know, lots of activity and standards, writing, uh, consortiums, all good stuff, you know. Um, And, you know, in in our case, we're a mapping company. Mapping is fundamentally a safety redundancy technology, so we have to track that stuff pretty closely. But at that AVS symposium, I don't know if you stuck around for this after your keynote, but um, there are several. They're all safety related. But one in particular really stuck out to us, uh, which was by a representative from Volvo. Um, And the reason it stuck out was... At least, as far as we know, it was the first time any major auto company had drawn a line in the sand in terms of how safe is safe enough. Uh, And they were very specific about their views on it. At least this representative was. They, if I remember correctly, they had like 40-something years of crash data that they use. It's a Volvo corpus of data. And it's very sort of cohortized, you know, so they can actually extract, you know, different cohorts. And so they defined it as a driver that is skilled, experienced, and attentive. Um, and they actually have quantitative definitions of that. Oh, so I, and, I, and I believe you guys are um, 
part of the SOTIF, the uh, uh, the ISOs. Uh, is, is that true? Part of the uh, folks? We we are not part of SOTIF. Oh, you're not. No. Okay, yeah. sorry. I thought I thought you were. It, yeah. it, regardless, I'm very curious because you guys uh, are very sort of. Um, you know, forward thinking and speak a lot about safety. How important do you think it's going to be to get that specific to, you know, yeah. to, especially with lay people in the, in the public realm? Yeah. And, and I think that this, so when we think about this ultimately coming to a product, we think about not creating unreasonable risk on the road, right? That when we, when you are, you know, speaking safety jargon, that's the bar. Uh, and that permeates the, um, the functional safety process we put in place, it leads to error rates uh, around what we think with SOTIF uh, and other standards. Um, and so the challenge then is translating that because we, we have to do a bunch of engineering work, right, and analysis. Um, and we need to be able to share that in, in technical depth with, with our friends in, in policy and regulatory bodies. Uh, and then we need to find a way to translate that to the ultimate consumer, so they can make an informed decision about the risk they're taking uh, and make a decision whether they want to accept and use this technology or not. Uh, and so I think that's an area where there's, there's a lot of, like, nobody has done this yet. Uh, and, I, and, you know, we saw, we've seen first steps of progress with, you know, some part of this with the SAE work, uh, defining the different levels of autonomy. And I think at first those were very nebulous, um, even after the first draft of it. And then they came out with this really nice uh, infographic that highlighted it. And I thought that helped make it a little more explanatory, or a little more explainable for people. We'll need to be able to do that same kind of translation uh, around safety, ultimately. Cool. So just to put you on the spot a little bit, so on unreasonable risk, Yeah. Um, when or if do you believe you'll be you're getting closer to actually specifying and quantifying that? Um, yeah, so, is, is so, that even something we could expect this year? Stay tuned. We'll we'll, we'll share that with you when we can. Awesome. Yeah. Uh, I'm gonna ask a question. Is that, yeah. Please please identify yourself. And now we have Cordy Ehrlichman representing uh, co-founder of Robotics and voice of reason from Pittsburgh. Please proceed, Courtney. Thank you. And uh, we were just talking earlier about CMU. So I kind of want to frame this question back to the DARPA challenge. And you were just talking about, you know, democratization. So I'm curious at what point you were working for a military purpose and then transferred this to the, you know, the public streets. At yeah. what point did you, did that democratization light go off? And I two-part questions suck, but... I mean, do you Let's think that it. there's a challenge? I mean, part of the challenge right now is that the timeline is very far out, right? It keeps slowing down. <sighs> and I feel like, for me, when I look at it, it was Google maybe decided that this was the solution. Um, and so I'm just curious about you and your experience through moving from DARPA yeah. to Google and now to the public streets. I, so I didn't understand the second question. I, I just want to understand your thought process yeah. and moving through that and how it's democratization. Yeah. So, so, so when I started working in the space, it was we, you know, I'd been working with uh, some folks at NASA on, you know, you know, a, a prototype for space exploration, uh, and then the DARPA challenges came along, and at the time, um, the concept was let's get our young men and women out of harm's way, right? If you looked at the Iraq war in Afghanistan, there were more people lost on the supply lines than there were on the front. Uh, and so let's find a way to allow our, our brave young men and women 
to either not be in the vehicles or to be able to be vigilant looking for, for enemy threat. Um, and so that was the aspiration there. And that seemed exciting and meaningful and important. Uh, and then at some point, um, we moved from the desert challenge, the grand challenge, to the urban challenge. Uh, and again, that was within the context of the Defense Department because they realized, you know, you don't just drive a truck across the middle of the desert. You have to drive it around the base and, and around people. Uh, and so that was the first time that I started to kind of think about the implications for this on road. And then really it's been understanding the opportunity around the economics and so f first providing you know safety the the massive safety benefits we see but then thinking about the opportunity for transportation in the community so w when we look at public transportation in the united states it's kind of broken um that I, I, that's an understatement for sure <laughs> I, I'm, I'm canadian yeah. so um and you know you take LA, and I haven't looked at these numbers for probably four years, but about 10% of the cost is covered by turnstile revenue. The other 90% is uh, covered by taxes, right? Subsidized by the public. Um, the reason for that is, you know, as a, as a city expands, right, the area that you're covering expands quadratically. Uh, and you can't afford to spend quadratically to cover, uh, cover it with routes. So you pick certain routes. Uh, you pick them often in a gerrymandered way because somebody is on the committee and knows somebody who this matters oh, yeah, to. Um, well and, and that's because the cost is, a big chunk of the cost is the cost of operating the vehicle. And that's the driver. And we have to put one driver to many seats to make it even as cost efficient as it is today. Imagine a world where we can take that driver, reduce the cost of them, and use smaller vehicles. We can now provide mass transit at a price point where it uh, is break-even, if not actually revenue positive, uh, and at the same kind of price that it is today. I think that kind of thinking about those economics was where I started to realize there was a real opportunity here. Yeah, and I guess my question is really, when did you start thinking about that? When did um, that happen? Was it know. at the DARPA challenge? No, was it, 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 was, it was certainly after that. Okay. Mo most of my career decisions have been around, that seems like the next really cool, interesting problem to go work on. Okay, cool. Thank you. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, uh, my name's Joey Penniman. I'm a mechanical engineer at Neuro, and... Uh, I'm also a volunteer for the MidCal section of the Society of Automotive Engineers. Um, I do primarily student outreach for that. Cool. And I'm wondering, you know, with this industry becoming, you know, more and more complex and more comprehensive as every year goes by, how would you recommend students, maybe in college or even at a high school level, uh, sort of prepare themselves so that you know they're they're able to. I guess, contribute, because yeah. the, the learning curve is just becoming so steep. I, I think that one of the things that is joyous about this problem is that it is so broad, and that um, we get to work with all kinds of different people. So unlike a conventional startup that might have, you know, four hackers in a basement, uh, and they kind of, you know, spin something up and then see what happens, you know, we have to have all the different kinds of engineering, uh, right? All the mechanical, electrical, optical, all those kind of folks. Reliability, systems. We have to have all the different flavors of software engineers. Uh, but then we have to have all these other really interesting people, right? We have to have folks who understand government relations and policy making. 
uh, because you know we have to be able to explain what we're doing to, to we have to have uh, a really strong communications team because what we're doing is interesting and hard to understand and so we need to be able to explain that to people and so I think that there's what, what I find is exciting is that you could pick pretty much any interesting chunk of major and have a contribution in this space thank you I was just gonna just to add on to that question really quick. Like, are we uh, is the the talent challenge in the AV space getting any easier or harder? Or where are we on that? No, no, we're we're still um, it, it's absolutely a war out there for talent, and you know we're we're just thrilled about the people we have at Aurora. You know, they're some of the best people out there. They're really great to work with, um, and anyone who wants to come join us, you know, we're always hiring. So we'd love to have you. The question I had was about hiring practices and talent. So there's a couple approaches. One, Cruz has this volume approach, right? Um, and Kyle has told me that software, they can take like a software engineer and really kind of train them up. And then there is another approach. And when you're seeing a lot of, um, I think that's where you're seeing like huge incentive packages being thrown at some real stars. Um, what... What is Aurora trying to do? And I know that the easy answer is like, look for the best people, the best cultural yeah. fit. But I mean, really, yeah. what what is what is the philosophy of the company? Do you think that you can take any software engineer if they've got if they're a good uh, employee and they've got a good work ethic and all those things and fit the cultural, um, you know, they they're a good cultural fit for Aurora, but maybe they're not the most talented, you know let's say, machine learning expert, they, their, their skills are more basic. Is it possible to take them to where they need to be? So, so we actually, um, we kind of do both, honestly. And that, that may sound like a hedge, but let me explain. So it turns out that there is value to experience and, and knowledge, right? Uh, you know, like you can't just learn everything you need to on the internet, right? Actually having people who've studied in depth in an area is important. Um, but... It turns out that uh, a world-class roboticist uh, or a world-class ML person may not actually be a world-class software engineer. Uh, and so the way we try to build the team is we try to find really strong domain experts and pair them up with high-quality software engineers. And what happens with that is both parties learn, right? The domain expert picks up the, the software engineering skills and becomes more competent and more more skilled. Uh, and then the, the kind of generic software engineer picks up these really deep technical skills from the partnership with the domain expert. And I think that's one of the really exciting things we offer to employees that come to Aurora is we have world-class people in both of those spaces and that we, we get to help build people over time. And it doesn't matter who you are, uh, you have the opportunity to learn from the people around you there. I think that's really exciting. Yep. And then just project so we can hear. Yeah, this is Ethan Soilgreen. I'm the Chief Product Officer at Carmera. My question is about how you think about the interaction between rules of the road and how human drivers operate. And I'll give that a little bit more nuance and more meat on the bone and say, yeah. so we build HD maps. We build an HD map using high precision sensors, take a scan of the road, use that to generate an HD map that is what the rules of the road are. Then we maintain the map using human drivers. We partner with delivery fleets, storage companies, anyone who's, anyone who's putting lots of vehicles on the road 
to track what's changing in real time about the city. Now, what we see is that the rules of the road, the markings on the road, and how those human drivers driving those delivery vans operate are different. A good example of this would be a bike lane next to a driving lane, where you as the the rules of the road is you as the driver of the vehicle should not enter the bike lane. You should wait until getting into an intersection and then make your right turn around the bike lane. Depends on what state you're in. Depends. But in a lot of places, yeah. those are the rules. Yeah. But how human drivers operate is to pull into the bike lane yeah. before the intersection and then make the right turn from there. Yeah. So you as an autonomous vehicle developer, yeah. which do you choose to do? Do you choose to operate as the human driver does and drive illegally or not as the human driver does legally but confusing every other human driver around you on the road? Yeah, so, so I, I think first let me talk about the point scenario. So it turns out that that's actually one of the challenges that we've started to talk to about uh, policy uh, makers and regulators about is these kind of subtle human driving rule changes. So it turns out in California, you're by law supposed to move into the bike lane and then make the turn. Uh, in Pennsylvania, you're supposed to make the turn at the intersection. And like my personal opinion is the move into the lane is probably the better answer because you don't end up kind of J-turning through the cyclist that's coming along. So at Aurora, we take the approach of trying to follow the law. So our vehicles will drive the speed limits. You know, they'll stay on their side of the road. There are certain situations where... Uh, let, let me take a slightly less controversial one. So if you have a double-parked vehicle, uh, a human driver will take the action to cross the double yellow line to move around it and then continue on in the traffic lane. And as we've had conversations with police about this, there, there's kind of an acknowledgement that um, you almost certainly aren't going to get, in, uh, get into trouble for that unless you... Uh, engage, uh, unless an accident results, unless a collision results. And in the case of a collision, you are then almost certainly at fault. Uh, and so I think for those kind of situations where it's essential to the progress of traffic, one, we would hope as this technology rolls out, we get kind of refinement in the rules. Uh, and then early on, I think we have to take, you know, we have to take responsibility if we're going to, you know, violate a rule somewhere. Uh, and, you know, but understand that, that may be necessary to deliver a viable product. Okay. Uh, just know Sterling Anderson sneak in here. You have any questions for, uh, for Chris? I know you guys never talk, so. <laughs> All right. Sam Anthony, uh, Perceptive Automata. So, so I had a kind of follow-up to that. So, from my perspective, and this might be that I live in Boston, right? In Boston, driving is maybe barely a rule-based system and, and, and I think fundamentally a social system. And so in that case, you were talking about how you, you, don't, you want to roll out when you've like solved the engineering problem, right? When these work right. So my question is, if, you have, if you're injecting rule-following vehicles at scale into a system that's a fundamentally social system, even if there's not really a good way to, to solve it other than to be rule following, even if the vehicles, even if you've solved the engineering problem to have the vehicles be safe, isn't, isn't that going to, no matter how good they are, isn't that going to introduce chaos when they get deployed at scale? So I think, I think, uh, I don't know. Right, so uh, my my expectation is that this technology will roll out first places where it's more viable, where kind of the definition of the traffic that's around it uh, will be more reasonable, where the roads are maybe um, have a little more structure to them. Uh, I think one of the really interesting things uh, 
Those are, those are beautiful. Uh, the, one of the really interesting things that will happen over time uh, will be how much does deploying these vehicles into a population actually help reform the driving there? So imagine if suddenly uh, a critical mass of vehicles are behaving kind of in a rule-based way. I can imagine that pushing the human drivers actually towards that type of driving as well. So I, I want to push you a little on that because I could also imagine the opposite. And again, this might be coming from Boston, yeah. but in Boston, if you see someone that's following the rules, that's that's like fresh meat, right? Yeah. Like that's someone you that's a target. And and so I feel like then do you do you get do you get pushed into this situation where you have conflict, right? Where where autonomous vehicles just kind of inherently can't hang. And then when you do that, again, I go back to, do we have 20 years of chaos when we do broad scale rollout? Uh, so again, not a big fan of 20 years of chaos. Um, but <laughs> Me neither. Uh, but I, I guess I think that they're part of the reason why people behave the way they do is the social contract. Uh, and that if a significant fraction of the vehicles, like if, if a significant, you know, a critical mass of the population is in these vehicles, uh, and it's getting honked off because people keep behaving badly around them. Then there will be social pressure to change the way people behave, and so I think it's a it'll be a really interesting uh, kind of social experiment, honestly. So um, yeah, so <laughs> what we originally envisioned as a uh, discussion of the state of autonomy has morphed into I think kind of Chris Ermson's office hours, which is in turn morphing into the party, which is thanks for Novo which is for bringing bursting the, uh, in here. The, uh, <laughs> great, the, the club scene. Yes, this is, this is this has made it dramatically more the, fun. The party transition has clearly started. Yeah. Um, so, do we have other anybody got some burning things to contribute while we're here? We just all want to start to party. Kelly Funkhauser. Is this on? It is on. Okay. I got one more. And it, this hopefully is a funnish question, but hard. Um, so, so what do you think is the biggest hurdle or need, what needs to be invented that hasn't been invented that may be a hurdle for full autonomy? Yeah, so I think that the... Um it's on the edge, and this is the combination of the perception technology and the process we use to validate that technology. So to, have, to get to the point where we have conviction that we're seeing the world around the vehicle well enough to drive safely through it, I think that is, that is one of the more challenging parts of the whole thing. Uh, I think we're making really good progress towards it, uh, but I think that's one of the, the, the toughest nuts to crack. Is that is that just a machine learning? Like what, what what is that problem? Like how? So so there's two parts. One is uh, the machine learning, the the building the perception system that works well enough, uh, and you know how are we? You know what blend of uh, thoughtfully engineered system versus machine learned system are we putting together, and how do we get the best out of both? How do we put guardrails around that so it behaves well? And then the second question is, you know, we think we built a sufficiently good system. How do we know how good it really is? How do we validate and test it? Um, because it's not go and drive all these miles, right? It, it's it has to be more thoughtful than that because, although you know, you you can you can trivially create scenarios where the just drive miles fails. Okay. Any burning questions before we wrap this up? No. Okay. Chris Heiser with Renovo. Hi there, Chris. Good to see you. Um, so just two quick questions. Um, Craftstick last night at the Fortune Dinner 
was claiming that Waymo was the only company that had ever done a fully autonomous drive on public roads. Quick reaction. Do you agree with that statement? Uh, is it technically correct? Probably not. Is it in spirit correct? Yes. Great. And then, and then when you look at the work that you're doing with, with Rivian and Amazon and this... Uh, I'm of, sorry. I, I missed the first part. Sorry. Is this on? Uh, uh, yeah, yeah. Sorry. They can hear it. I Fantastic. Hear it. Yeah. The, the work that you're doing with, with Amazon and, and, and potentially with Rivian and others in, in package delivery and logistics, is this? do you see it as a, a faster route to revenue and scale for companies like yours? So we think it's a really important part of what we're building. So from, from day one, we've, we've wanted to build a driver that was vehicle agnostic. Um, and uh, part of the reason why we bought a LiDAR company last year was because we, we believe that capability was something that unlocked uh, high-speed logistics, trucks on freeways. We, didn't think, we don't believe anyone else can actually see far enough to do this sufficiently safely. And so, and so we... That voice carries from yeah. It does. Yeah, what cuts, it cuts right through. Yeah. That is a gift right there. Um, but so we, we think that's really important. We, we do think that's a, uh, an important application. Whether it's the first application, we'll see. Uh, apparently not because, you know, uh, uh, the Waymo folks have people moving around in vehicles today. But we're excited about that one. So, so I think we need to kind of call the fact that the, yeah. the party is winning and we're yeah. losing, yeah. which is great because I mean this has been this has been so much fun and you've been a really really good sport at the end of a long day to come here and kind of anyone come and, and ask you know just anyone a bunch of bunch of randos uh, ask questions no so this has been thank you so much oh. for for making the time to do this Kirsten you wanna that's it I think that, you said it is that it all right, yeah. let's let's go party then. all right thanks so much yeah. for having me yeah, right. thanks Chris cool. thanks, thanks everyone else too for coming and, and participating.